the Acts of the Apostles is somewhat unique. Um, Joan here just mentioned that when we were young uh, in school, like I said, in the last century, etc., we didn't hear much about the Acts of the Apostles. And it was not one that was promoted by the church uh, up until around the first part of the 20th century, nearly 100 years ago, which seems rather strange. But frankly, the church really didn't understand the place of this particular book. All right? The four Gospels, come on in. The four Gospels... Uh, give us a great deal about the Lord Jesus, as they should. And the letters of Paul talk about the meaning of the four Gospels and the purpose and life of Jesus Christ, as it should. But the Acts of the Apostles is more history, but it has a great deal more into it. But the church fathers really didn't know exactly where to place that, and what to do with it. So, for centuries, they really didn't do much of anything. But as theology began to be developed by the average person, and not just by the monks and the priests, uh, they began to ask questions. And so it was not until about, as I said, roughly a 100 years ago, that the Acts of the Apostles began to take its place among the scriptures. And now, of course, our purpose in studying it is not only to understand what it is saying, but if you will kind of think ahead a little bit, as of the uh, end of Easter and for the next six weeks after Easter, almost all of the first readings of any and all of the masses will contain portions of the Acts of the Apostles. So this will help you to better understand how those portions of the Acts fits into the entire uh, scripture for those particular masses. All right. So for the Easter season, for the post-Easter season, the Acts of the Apostles will be the main reading, the first reading of all of the Masses. Okay. So, we can kind of think ahead about the purpose and the use of those uh, The other thing that we want to look at is how does this book and how does the Acts of the Apostles really fit into our faith scheme and our religious life, excuse me. One of the things that we have to look at is that the Acts of the Apostles, the book itself, could all easily be renamed the Gospel of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the most important of all the characters in this book. All right? Now, 
as I said before, if you turn to that circular illustration here, and for those of you who have been in the, the these classes before, um, this is just a refresher for you, but what we would really like is to have you all really understand. And one thing I do is that if you have never been in a Bible study program here at St. Clair or anywhere else, or you haven't been for a long time, don't feel uncomfortable because we begin the lecture and we go through it as if everybody is starting from the same point. So, you don't have to feel that we're going to call on you and embarrass you in any any way. We don't do that here. Now, getting back to this illustration here. God, there's only one God, okay? So, when we talk about any of the three persons of God, or the three natures of God, we are not excluding the other two. I had somebody call me one day and they said, I just attended a lecture by so-and-so and he said that God the Father was on that cross. And I said, no, it was Jesus. And he said, no, it was God the Father was on that cross. And this person was really upset and uptight, you know. I said, well, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Look at it this way. Maybe what he said was a little rough. But when you think of it, there's only one God. And whenever one, that one of the persons is operating, that doesn't mean the other two excluded. And therefore, God the Father... Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit were all on that cross. But all we could see if we were there would be Jesus. All right? And there's a reason for that. But let's go through this first. All right? God created everything in the universe, all human beings, plant, animals, inanimate objects, out of nothing. Out of love. Okay. So, he created us because even though we say God has no needs, that's not quite right. Okay. God has at least one major need. Anybody know what that is? He needs to love. Love cannot be bottled up. Love must be shared. All right, and therefore, God created mankind in order to share his love and to receive love in return. But God, being perfect, knew that mankind who was not perfect, except for a few of us, who was not perfect, also knew that mankind would sin. And so you'd say, well, then why would he bother? You know? But it's like any family. 
a young couple being married are in love and they want to have children. But they know that their children, if they're realistic, uh, those children are not going to be perfect. But that doesn't stop them. They still want to have children for the same reason, to share their love. And that is why God created mankind. All right, so we have in this particular illustration that God created and set up this whole plan of salvation, which we'll get into over a period of time, all right? And that is documented in the Old Testament. And then, at a particular point in time, the second person of the Trinity comes to fulfill the essence of that plan of salvation, that is, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then, that isn't the end of the program, the plan of salvation. Salvation will not be completed until we are returned to the Father. And so, Jesus leaves us with the Holy Spirit to take the benefits of his life, death, and resurrection, and the teachings that came from the Old Testament and contributes those through the Holy Spirit to bring us back to the Father. And that is why this is important, because the Acts of the Apostles really show how this particular section got started. And that's why this is incomplete. That is a dotted line on the arrow here leading back to the Father, because salvation will not be completed until all of us, all mankind, is returned to the Father. Okay? Does that make sense? Does that make sense? Okay. Any questions on that? All right? So, what I'm saying now is the Acts of the Apostles will really concentrate on this part of this circle. All right? The whole idea of the beginning of the end times. You'll see that phrase uh, two or three times in this book. And you've heard it many times, I'm sure. The end times, it does not refer to the end of the world. It refers to this period of time from the time of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension to the end of our life in this world. The end times for us, or the end times for all mankind, is not until we are all returned to the Father, or have at least the opportunity to be returned to the Father. Personal rejection is something else. Yeah. All right. <coughs> so, I hope that you'll keep all of that in mind as we go along. One of the interesting things of this particular book is that it details a lot of small incidents that have major effects on all of Christianity. And one of them is it details how 
the teachings of Christ became a separate faith and how and why it's Christianity separated from Judaism. All right. When I talk about the Jewish people, please don't misunderstand. I am not anti-Semitic, but I have a certain belief that I have to profess, and that is that the Jewish people were the major instruments beginning God's plan of salvation. They were started through the efforts of God working with Abraham. The purpose of the whole Jewish nation was to carry the message of Christ and the message of God the Father to all of mankind. They were to be the light to the nations. The word nations, as you will see used often in the book uh, of the Acts of the Apostles, but not only there, throughout the Bible. The word nations means everybody else other than the Jewish people. And the word nations, when translated from Hebrew, or back into Hebrew, you might say, comes out Gentile. I used to have a lady in one of my classes years ago who couldn't understand who the Gentiles were. And I tried to get her to see that everybody who was not a committed Jew was a Gentile. She couldn't, you know, she knew that there were the Amorites and the Prisites and all the those uh, other nations and the Babylonians and the Egyptians. She understood all that. But when it came to Gentiles, it just didn't click in her mind. So after a while, we got to calling her Gentile Jenny. <laughs> and finally, I think, by the end of the class, she finally got it. But Gentile Jenny, in fact, I had several books. She used to give me all kinds of little books. And it it would be in there later, Gentile Jenny. Yeah, okay. <laughs> But uh, they were to be the light of God to the Gentiles or to all mankind, not exclusively to the Jews. Unfortunately, what they did was they became very exclusive to the point where they would not share themselves with anyone else who was not a Jew, and that didn't work because that was not what God intended. All right. Uh, so when Jesus Christ came and preached something that was a little different, they got upset and they rejected Jesus because he did not measure up to what they expected uh, of the Messiah that was to come. Their idea of the Messiah and his uh, goals and objective was to get rid of the Romans and set up uh, the Jewish nation as a very uh, important and economical power. That is not what God had in mind. That's the difference between 
the whole idea of of um, materialism or, or the earthly ideas of mankind and the spiritual ideas of God. All right. So the whole of the Old Testament is sort of written, or at least the historical parts of the Old Testament are written uh, in a very earthly way of looking at life and of faith and relationships. The New Testament changes all of that and looks at it in a spiritual sense. All of the New Testament is, as I said before, is actually, if we... Pardon me. If we go through all of this, the New Testament points to salvation, which is a spiritual ending, all right? Not a physical ending, but a spiritual ending. That's why this word salvation is down there, all right? If you look at it in another way, the first covenant that God established with mankind through the beginnings of Abraham was for descendants, land, and protection. All of those were sort of earthbound types of gifts, you might say. Descendants, land, and protection. So protection included the eventual salvation, but they wouldn't have understood that. So it was presented in an earthly way of God's protecting his people. Unfortunately, they took that to extremes, meaning not only protection, but glorification of the Jewish nation on earth. And that is not what was intended. All right? So, because of the rejection of Jesus Christ (coughs) by the Jewish people, God then withdrew the first covenant signified by the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in the year 70 AD and reestablished his covenant with mankind through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what was the covenant about? It was about eternal salvation. All right. A totally spiritual gift. So you go from one, and you can understand, at least I can understand in some ways, how the Jewish people got to that point. Unfortunately, they totally ignored, in fact, they totally murdered all of the prophets, the 15 literary prophets, because they didn't like what the prophets had to say. And they murdered John the Baptist and they murdered Jesus Christ, all for the same reason. They didn't like what he said, or they said. Unfortunately, that exclusivity, that's a hard word to say, um, caused them to be separated from Christ and from God himself in the way of the covenant. Now, that doesn't mean that the Jewish people can't 
have an opportunity to get to heaven and find salvation. But they'd have a long ways to go in changing their attitude and their minds, okay, and heart. All right. So, we are looking at a great deal of interesting things embedded in this book that were never really brought out. You mentioned that we never talked about the Acts of the Apostles in school. And that's understandable in some ways, uh, but regrettable at the same time, because there are so many interesting things in this book. The separation of Christianity from Judaism, all right, is, I think, one of the most important things. If you go to uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, if you you have your Bibles, and I would highly recommend that you bring your Bibles with you, uh, not those big coffee table things, but, you know, convenient uh, Bible of uh, convenient size and, and weight. Okay. Go to Matthew uh, chapter 16. I think it's uh, verse 13, yeah. It says, when Jesus came to the neighborhood of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples this question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Or who do people say he is, Jesus is? And they replied, some say John the baptizer, others Elijah, one of those prophets. Still others, Jeremiah, one of the literary prophets, or one of the other prophets. And you, he said to them, who do you say that I am? You are the Messiah, Simon Peter answered, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For no mere man has revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father. That is, the Holy Spirit, at the will of the Father, revealed it to Peter. All right? It wasn't something that somebody else told him. And I, for my part, declare to you, you are rock. And on this rock I will build my church. And the jaws of death shall not prevail against it. And I will entrust to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you declare bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you declare loosed on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Those are the words that the Catholic Church takes as their beginning authority. All right. The beginning authority of the church and that is important because what we are trying to do is to see how did the human side of the church then develop after the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. All right? And that's what the Acts of the Apostles is all about. Okay. It takes the death and resurrection of Christ and his proclamation 
of authority through Peter and the apostles to carry out the mission that he himself, Jesus himself, began. All right. Now, if you go to the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. says, the disciples made their way to Galilee, to, to the mountain to which Jesus had summoned them. At the sight of him, those who had entertained doubts fell down in homage, because now they recognized that he was God. Jesus came forward and addressed them in these words, Full authority has been given to me, both in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to carry out everything I commanded you, and know that I am with you always until the end of the world, or or the end of time. So, if you take those two passages, they are... God's giving the authority that was given to Christ, who then in turn gives it to mankind through the apostles, and then through all of the disciples, we are responsible for disseminating that information as much as we possibly can. So, who are the disciples of today? We are. Okay? And who are the apostles of today? The bishops. That's right. So, the authority has not changed. The structure has really not changed since the time of Christ. Oh, it may appear to be. There's a little more formality and a little more pomp and circumstance and that kind of thing. But really, the basic structure of the church is the same today as it was at the time of Christ, all right? There's a lot more apostles, you might say. Uh, Obviously, there is roughly, in uh, today's world, there's roughly 3,000 bishops and well over a billion uh, Christians, okay? So, there's quite uh, a growth, but it all starts in this little book here, the Acts of the Apostles. One of the big problems of this book and all the books of the Bible, but primarily this one, is the lack of a timetable. It covers a period of approximately 40 years from the time of Christ up to almost the time of the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., And you might say, well now, if Christ was 33, 33 from 70 only, you know. Well, you got to remember that the Julian calendar was abandoned uh, somewhere around the 6th or 7th century in favor of the Gregorian calendar that was established by uh, the Pope Gregory III. And even that, was off about seven years uh, 
as they found out later. But the reason that there is no timetable in here is that there was no universal calendar that was accepted particularly by the Jewish people. They did not accept the Julian calendar. Um, and of course, the Gregorian calendar didn't come along until much, much later. So there was no universal calendar. And therefore, calendars, as we think of it today, we couldn't do without a calendar today. I mean, life and business would just go haywire. But in those days, everything was measured from who was in power. Okay? And those things can be fairly well documented by several different sources coming together and creating uh, a specific time. All right. And of course, when Pope Gregory III went back and tried to establish uh, times from the current universal calendar, uh, there were a little bit of uh, mix-ups here and there. Okay. For example, um, Julius Caesar, yeah, Julius Caesar died in the year 4 BC. Okay, and yet he was um, the one who was in power at the time of Christ. Um, and then Augustus Caesar, who came along right afterwards, um, was the one who established um, many of the rules and regulations and somewhat abandon the use of the Julian calendar. So you have a lot of problems in that line. I won't go into all of that, but you can get the idea that we have to be careful when we're reading this thing here is because much of it sounds like it all happened in the first few weeks after Christ died and rose from the dead and ascended, okay? And that's not the case. If you take your uh, maps that I've given you there, poor as they may be, uh, I've tried to, well, obviously not the first one, but let's take the second one here, Paul's first missionary journey. Now, Saul of Tarsus, who became St. Paul, did not know Christ or did not have a personal relationship or uh, a personal meeting meaning with Christ. His conversion came later. All right. So his first journey was approximately assumed to be in the years 36 through 40. All right. And if you go to the next one, his second journey was assumed to be in years 45 to 50. So now we're talking roughly 20 years after Christ's ascension and resurrection. Or resurrection and ascension, I should say. Then if you go uh, to the third one, okay, you'll see that it goes on up to around A.D. 60. 
Now, I'm, these are only approximate because there is no way to prove or disprove. But you can sort of in, imagine in your mind that all the traveling was by foot or horseback, but horses were uh, only for the very wealthy and uh, only in the very first scene do we have an indication that Paul was on a, on a horse because he gets tossed off of the horse in order to uh, get his attention, you might say. Okay, And then his last journey, which goes uh, from Antioch or Jerusalem via Antioch to Rome, uh, is approximately year 64 to 67. And these are the only ones that have somewhat of um, a certainty to them because we know uh, fairly certain that Paul was executed at the end of the year 67 AD and that he spent two years in Rome in prison. All right, And it took him almost a year to get there because he was shipwrecked and he was stranded on the island of Malta for several months. So we know that it took a year to get there and then he was imprisoned for at least two years before his execution. So these times are, mm, let's say, more accurate than the others. And again, I'll get you better copies of these uh, these maps as quickly as I can. Chet? Right. All right, well, all right. Uh, Chet just asked a good question. And, of course, we're jumping ahead quite a bit, but that's all right. It's something to look forward to in a way. Chet asked the question, if Paul did not know Christ or have any first-hand meeting with him, why was he persecuting him by going to Damascus uh, looking for uh, Christians to bring back uh, and, you know, put in prison or whatever. Uh, Paul's whole intention, misguided though it might be, was that he felt that the Christians, who were thought at the time to be just another sect or part of Judaism, were in fact uh, desecrating the temple by allowing Gentiles to come in and participate with them. And there was a lot of other reasons. No. That's right. He was not going after Christ personally because Christ was dead and uh, ascended to heaven. He was going after Christians in general. But there's an important point in this in that he was on his way to Damascus. So if you look at any one of these, uh, look at the first map that you have there. The circle shows where Jerusalem is. Damascus is way up in the right-hand corner. All right. The 
time, the uh, distance would be little less than 200 miles. Just to travel that would take quite a ways. But the more important thing is that Damascus was a major center of new Christianity. And the time for Christianity to get from Jerusalem up to Damascus would have taken a number of years through its normal growth and the spread uh, by the other apostles and disciples. So that in itself will show you a spread of time. So I don't want to belabor the point, but it's something that you've got to keep in mind uh, as we go along and read this uh, book. All right. There's another point that is important to understand. At the same time that Christianity was budding and developing, there was a movement that had been in existence for a long time, but very few of us today have heard about it or heard about the influence of Hellenization. Hellenization really means the influence of Greek culture established through Alexander the Great some 300 years before. And it appealed to many, many people because it advocated wealth, education, uh, the um, favoritism of women as opposed to uh, the Jewish way of looking down upon women. It was something that appealed to most of the people except those people immediately around Jerusalem who stuck to the old traditional ways of Judaism. All right? Women were sort of down here. The men were everything. All right? For example, in Judaism, uh, the father was king and God and everything else in the family, and the firstborn male, firstborn son, if and when the father dies, the firstborn son inherits everything and has to take care of his mother, if she's still living, but the mother gets nothing from the estate. That was Jewish culture. All right, That's only a minor incident of how the Jewish people looked. But Hellenization was this whole movement established, as I said, by Alexander the Great, and it clashed with Judaism. So, what happened? In and around Jerusalem, as I said, it was totally ignored and put down. But as you go further away from Jerusalem, particularly up into Galilee and some of the northern parts of Israel of the time, it was appealing to those people. And there were a lot more Greek-speaking people in those areas who adopted a lot of the Hellenization ideas. 
And in the process, they liked anything new that would come along. And so when Christianity came along, it appealed to them because it fit in. The one thing that Hellenization didn't have was the belief in a one true God. They had beliefs in many gods, and it didn't really fit the needs of the people. So when Christianity began to flourish much further north and south and so forth, away from Jerusalem, the people began to accept it. So you had this clash of cultures that came in and it enhanced the acceptance of Christianity, but it was very much against Judaism. All right. So you have a problem that we'll go into a little bit more as we go along. But keep in mind, if you see the word Hellenization, it doesn't have anything directly to do with Helen of Troy, but it is named so because of its identity uh, with Greek culture. Okay. Any questions so far? Yes, sir. Yes. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. The gentleman just mentioned that in Paul's writings, he was always a Jew. And that's an interesting point because Christ and God's intention was never to separate and create a new religion called Christianity. All right. What Christ was trying to do was to get the Jewish people to accept his teachings and then we'd all be Jews. Isn't that nice? But that didn't work because, as I said, their exclusivity uh, ruled out a lot of his teachings. That is, love of God and love of neighbor, regardless of who that neighbor might be. And, of course, you know that Romans and Jews and Greeks all kind of live uh, in the same areas. Okay, uh, Obviously, the people surrounding Jerusalem were primarily Jews, but there were a lot of Romans and, and other foreigners, as, as they were called, in that same area. Okay. But Paul, yes, never... Um, relinquished his idea of being uh, a Jew. And he felt that he was, as God intended, taking the Jewish background, the Jewish basis, and extending it uh, through the teachings of Christ to all mankind. And that's the way it should have been. Good point. Any other questions or comments? My goodness, none of all. Obviously, there's got to be something. I've got a few more minutes. I've got to keep you. Okay. All right. No questions at all. Hmm. Goodness. All right. Well, 
I want then to read something that I think is very important. Repetition. Because in Jewish writing, as in all writings of this time period 2,000 years ago, there was no way to highlight something or underline or put in bold. Therefore, to emphasize a point, they would repeat an item or an event or words. All right. So, for example... Uh, when we get to Paul's conversion, it's mentioned three different times with just a little bit of difference in each one. And then when we get into reading Paul's letters, which we won't do except for small portions, uh, you'll see him repeating the whole event of his conversion, which was uh, rather dramatic, um, a couple times again. All right. So, don't feel that there's something wrong here when you see the same thing repeated uh, several times. Likewise, Jewish writings of this time period did not mean that the words were right out of the mouth of the speaker and into the printed form. The book that we call Acts was probably written around the sometime right after the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., somewhere between 70 and 80 to 85 A.D., some 30, 40, maybe even 50 years after some of the events that it depicts. Obviously, there were no tape recorders around, and so the words right out of the person's mouth uh, isn't exactly what we're reading. But that is normal, accepted culture. So what we have here is Paul's assumption of what was said. He may have gotten uh, brief ideas uh that is, Luke may have gotten brief ideas, I should say, um, in writing these things from various uh, eyewitnesses, as well as maybe secondary sources. But he had to assume what these words were and what these speeches are. The reason I'm saying that is because when you read some of the speeches in Acts, you will hear words that were said by somebody else somewhere else. And you'll say, well, gee, now, is he repeating something? Or why are we hearing this same thing over again from someone else? And it is because the writer, in this case, Luke, has written these to the best of his knowledge of what was intended not necessarily the exact words. See, when we read modern biographies, uh, we have ways of checking whether or not the main subject of this biography really said such and such. 
In fact, I got two biographies as gifts for Christmas. And if I feel that, gee, I don't think one was Thomas Jefferson said such a thing, there's ways to check it out by many other sources. Luke didn't have that kind of uh, resource to go and check out. So it was common knowledge, it was commonly accepted that the writer uh, of any historical document would put in what he expected or thought in good conscience that the speaker would have said. Well, I don't want to belabor the point, but it's it's something that you should be aware of. Because what we want to do here is to really understand not so much (coughs) the minute details and the words, but we want to understand uh, the effect. And that brings me to another point where (coughs) we talk about the Bible as being the word of God. And that's true. And I firmly believe that. And I teach it that way. But it is not the words of God. Alright? There's a big difference. When we say the word of God, we capitalize the W in that case. And it really means the spirit of Christ. That's what the word of God refers to. The spirit of Jesus Christ. And that means that the message of the Bible, the message of all of its contents, is from the Holy Spirit. But not necessarily the individual words. Those are words of the writer. In this case, Luke, or St. Luke. So, we are not saying, and I'm not saying that a lot of this is fiction or made up. That's not the case. The case is that Luke did the best he can in giving you or presenting to you what he felt was the uh, true meaning of what was intended. I hope you understand what we're saying. Okay. Any questions? So this would apply also to the beginning of John's gospel and the beginning of the word. Yes. The word meaning, in that case, meanings Jesus Christ. Yeah. And the word became flesh. And the word became flesh. Yes. That's, of course, where we get that whole idea of the gospel, the Bible being the word of God. The spirit of Jesus Christ. Yes. Thank you. That's a good way of of, uh, pointing that out. Yes. All right. Yes, sir. Uh, Not the Dead Sea Scrolls, obviously, because they were uh, spirited away before, long before Christ, and not discovered until 1947, all right? But yes, the writings of uh, Mark and uh, Matthew were available before him. 
In fact, Luke took a good portion of Mark's gospel and just added to it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, now that you mention, are interesting because when they were discovered in 1947, and later, because it was not just one day, it was over a period of time, um, they were compared to any of the authorized Bibles, and they compared very close. In other words, there were no major deviations uh, from the Old Testament. Now, there were no copies of the New Testament in the Dead Sea Scrolls because I've said they were written long before Christ. Yeah. All right. Any other questions or comments? All right. Let's end with a prayer. And then, uh, if you will, we will have registration up here. We would like to have you turn in your registration form and uh, you will all receive one of these books. So let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we have covered a lot of territory. We ask that you help us to let it sink in and sort it out so that we understand what it is that you want us to learn. One of the things that I didn't mention and that I should have is that whenever we study Holy Scripture, we should have a goal in mind of what we are trying to get out of uh, this particular session. So help us with that idea and concept of a goal. Help us to discover what that goal is for us so that through the next ten weeks we can help that goal to grow. So we thank you for this time together and we ask your blessing on our efforts. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.